Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing? We're just gonna, there we go. Welcome, Uh, if you're visiting, my name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors uh, here today, Uh, I'm one of the pastors here regularly, not just today, Um, we're in a a series on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to that in just a second, we're about to hit a passage uh, where Jesus is going to talk uh, about anger, which uh, I love this week because I don't struggle with anger at all, I just occasionally feel absolute rage towards another human being, which is... (laughs) got to be different, right, on some level. Someone once said, uh, have you ever thought about the fact that when you want to frown at somebody, uh, it takes like 300 muscles, whereas it only takes like 25 muscles to smile at them, but it only takes four muscles to reach out and punch them in the face. Um, <laughs> and so you got to decide like how, how you want to deal with this whole thing. Uh, and, and we're going to read a passage uh, that is going to be somewhat challenging in different ways. And, and let me say this as a, as a precursor. Uh, I, I read this challenge with somewhat of a smugness of someone who doesn't have fits of rage particularly. Uh, and all week long, this passage just messed with me and pushed me and Jesus just continued to work in me. So, so, so that's my hope for you. Uh, that, that some of you may, if you came with a husband or wife, start uh, kind of sitting here, maybe somewhat smugly, kind of like turning eyes to your spouse. Uh, and then at some point in the sermon might be like, ooh, yeah, that, that doesn't feel good. Some of you might know exactly who needs to hear this message uh, and be ready to send it to them. Uh, and then might say, oh, uh, maybe, maybe I was the person that needed that message. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard uh, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, first leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come back and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you paid the last penny. Let us pray because it feels like this needs some prayer. Jesus, as we unpack your word, as we ask it to speak to us, Uh, Would you do exactly that? Speak to us. Uh, Bring uh, challenge to those that need us, need it. Bring hope to those that need it. Bring a sense always of your grace and your ability to transform lives. Uh, That's the thing that we celebrate more than anything. The fact that you change lives. Amen. So as we get into this text, a couple of things. Uh, Firstly, if you feel like instantly, I'm like, oh, anger is this, I struggle with this, like, ouch. Uh, Then know that one, you're not alone. 
uh, that, that, that is a thing that lots of people struggle with. Uh, and, and if on the other hand, you, you, you know you struggle with anger and you're like, well, well no, that's, that's not a big deal. Like it, it's, it's on the list of things, it's pretty uh, far down. Uh, kind of hold on to your hat for a second because may, maybe it's not as far down. And so prepare for, for Jesus to push back against that idea. And if, as I said earlier, you're kind of coming with this premise of, no, 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 this isn't for me because I just don't struggle with this. Well, just, just wait, just wait. The Sermon on the Mount is this passage we've been on for a while. Uh, Amy Jill Levine says this, the Sermon on the Mount is a beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. We also talked about it as a guide to human flourishing. A new way to be human is a way that you might phrase it. All of those different things. It's Jesus sharing how he imagines life in his good Kingdom. So last week we landed here. Generally, religious groups, religion asks you to play a part. Uh, you wear a cloak, you wear a mask. Like we looked at that little video clip, right, of, of Ian McClellan playing Gandalf. It's, it's Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, wizard, you shall not pass. And it's this moment where he becomes something else. And yet Jesus offers a transformed heart. He offers a, a complete change from the inside. The passage was this For I tell you that unless your righteousness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the question mark that lurks is, how are we supposed to do better righteousness than people who spend their whole lives trying to practice righteousness? Surely that's just an impossibility. And yet it seems that that the whole premise by which they thought they were doing righteousness was wrong. They thought it was a surface game when it's an internal thing. Jesus invites us to begin from a transformed heart. So over the next few weeks, what we'll see is Jesus start to touch on the law of Moses, this old law code that's been around for a while. He'll take five different elements and he'll kind of nudge on them and play with them and push uh, on them. And what I'd love you to do is every time you read that and say, that seems impossible, remind yourselves that the whole premise of Jesus' teaching is a transformed heart. That's where he starts. That's ground one. It's never you. It's always you and him together. It's always him in the center, pulling all things gravitationally towards himself, changing lives as you go. Ruth Haley Barton says this, that the best gift you can give is your transformed self, the person God made you to be, the person that he's worked on over the years, the person he transformed instantly in this one beautiful moment and will continue to transform forever. Religion asks us to play a part. Jesus offers a transformed heart, which brings us today where, as I say, Jesus is going to talk about anger. I don't struggle with it much for the most part, but there's a couple of things that I will own turn me instantly into some kind of maniac. Uh, just, just a couple uh, of things. One in particular is any automated system that requires me speaking to a robot when I just want to be speaking to a human being. Because I feel for the most part, human beings are reasonable. They can be negotiated with, and you can't negotiate with a robot. How many of you have found yourself yelling representative unnecessarily loud into a telephone with other people around. It just becomes this moment of just like uncontrolled rage. Representative, just just give me a human to talk to. Uh, And so just this week I spent 
hours on the phone with Xfinity going through their different system just, and I was actually trying to give them money. And apparently that was really hard for them to understand. And so in the end, the last person said, I can help you give us money. I said, no, you can't. I'm done with you. I'm done with your company. I'm going somewhere else. It just was this moment where this expression of anger finally burst out of me. My frustration hit. Jesus says that you have heard that it said to people long ago, you shall not commit murder, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. An odd place to start maybe to get us to anger. I once gave a, I was asked to give a sermon on one of the 10 commandments and I was assigned the passage around murder. And I got up and said, you shall not murder. Job done, right, right? The sermon is over. It's like ground level one. We all agree when you talk to people, when you leave, they should still be breathing. Like that's, that's always the goal. Like that's just, we agree. And so, so it felt like there wasn't a lot to unpack. And yet Jesus is going to take murder. And as he will regularly, he'll take us on this journey. Because remember, again, back to last week, there's this mountain that kind of is a flashback to the mountain in Exodus where the law is given. God is revealed back then as Yahweh, now as his son, Jesus. And then there's this new way to be human. And so, so when Jesus says it was said of old, you shall not murder, he's going to lead us to some other way of thinking about that. So, so, so just for a second, before we get there, what is it about murder that was so horrific? Because the Old Testament goes into some details on it. It, it specifically says in different places uh, that if you take another human life, your life is forfeit. Now, now sometimes that's confusing and we'll maybe do a little podcast dive into this, but there's, there's sometimes where someone murders someone and God seems to expressly go out of his way to make sure that their life isn't taken in return. Cain murders his brother Abel and God says, I'm going to protect Cain. There's some, some mystery to this, but, but somewhere back in the ancient law codes, there was this same accepted premise that you and I have that when you leave someone, they should still breathe when you go. And so, so to help us unpack that and get us to anger, I, I want to do a demonstration. It's, it's one that I did a couple of years ago, but this is going to unpack a little bit more. And I need a couple of volunteers to help me with this. Can I have a couple of volunteers from the crowd? Anyone? 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 Yes. Come on, Brian. Absolutely. Anyone? 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 Someone come take another. Jan. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Good for you, Jan. There we go. You get a club uh, and, and a hand, uh, a club and a hand. Uh, well, well done. Beautiful. Okay. So, so yeah. Oh. Suddenly this becomes a, a little bit more. And you know what? Actually, I'm just going to take that. Thank you. Um, I'll just hold this because, yeah. In actual fact, this is the good one. You can take that one. There we go. Um, so, so for imagine, just, just a second, you've got two people like back in prehistoric times, some kind of like, you know, well, we're throwing back a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, and somewhere they get into a conflict. Um, the, these cavemen's names, I don't know, what do you call cavemen? Bill and Bob, well, well Bill, Bill and Jan in this case. Uh, and, and, and Jan is upset because, well, let's just call you Brian. Um, Brian has, I don't know, stolen her mountain lion that she killed, and now she has nothing to eat. And so in the midst of her rage, uh, she grabs the cloth.
club with which she killed the mountain lion and she strikes Brian with the club. <laughs> and, and Brian in that moment falls down on the ground uh, in a beautiful theatrical way, dead. Congratulations, that's beautiful. Um, and now, now what, 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 does, what, what does Jan do in that moment? And that moment of, of landing <laughs> this first blow, yes, perhaps she celebrates, but, but then slowly she perhaps becomes concerned that Brian isn't moving. That there's something now wrong with him. Uh, and, and there's no obvious sign of that, but, but what does she do? She goes over and she reaches down and puts her head or her pocket mirror or whatever she's carrying to his mouth to see if he's breathing. Um, and you can check if you'd like, but no, yeah, po poke him. <laughs> po poke him was the other option. Um, um, and so, so, so why does she do that? She does that because in the ancient world, there was this recognition, as there is today, that breath was deeply tied to being alive. So when you didn't breathe, you were dead, and when you did breathe, you were alive. And for that reason, ancient languages almost universally tie the word for breath to the word for spirit. Because it's a thing that when you have it, you're alive, and when you are dead, you don't. So spirit tied deeply to breath. But then another idea deeply tied to being alive. There's this idea that somewhere, Brian, now dead, was an image bearer. That in the same way that the God that made him was creative and made him, this one too is creative, has this image of God. And so no one will quite do their hair the same way as Brian. Uh, again, no one will color coordinate their cave with their cave decorations again. That something is lost from the universe because an image bearer is now dead. And that's something to lament. Thank you very much, Jan. You were wonderful. Uh, and Brian, you were wonderful. You can arise. So, 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 you got that? So, and we're going to have to keep moving here because otherwise we're going to be here for a long time. So, there's this idea deeply rooted in the law, test, law code that, that to kill someone, to take their life, was to remove an image bearer from this planet. To take a life was to kill an image bearer. And that in itself was a tragedy. And so now Jesus will extend this and say, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What is Jesus doing here? This is where it gets just a touch complicated and to me a touch challenging. There's a couple of words Jesus could pick for anger. The first word is this word, thumos. Angry, the passion of anger aroused for a moment. We might use something like the phrase going nuclear. That moment where you're just in this rage at someone for a particular thing. And that anger has its problems, has its dangers. But he doesn't use that word for anger. He uses a different word for anger. This word, orge, which means bitterness a settled state of anger, an opposition to someone, to put yourself against someone in this permanent state of tension. The two words are very different. One might be summed up by the idea of a storm. It comes and it passes in a moment. 
It's going nuclear, as I said earlier. The other is this permanent stent that, that, that we might say to swell, to slowly grow, to keep on growing, to constantly develop. I, I love the fact that beautifully, we can just take this word orge and just change a letter and it gives us this beautiful picture of <laughs> anger. This, that it turns you into an ogre. It turns you into this permanent state. And, and so I've experienced this anger. While I don't explode, while I don't have these moments of just of outbursts of wrath, oh, I've been in that other place. Some years ago, I was working at a different church, and, and on the Sunday before taking a trip, I found out a piece of information, a piece of information that, that was new to me, that really uh, irritated me, that got under my skin. I, I didn't know what to do with it, and, and that day, I was due to drive some students about eight hours down to Tennessee from midnight down to eight o'clock in the morning. We were supposed to arrive for breakfast, this long journey winding down the country. And I can remember sitting there being consumed with this fury that wasn't like an outburst, but it was this swelling, meandering thing that for months now would rattle me, would just, would just bug me, would get to the heart of me. When Jesus is talking about anger, he's not talking about the first kind. He's talking about that internal state, that deep frustration, that deep opposition to another person. Why is Jesus doing that? Why is he talking about anger? Well, well, back in Jewish thinking, for a bunch of rabbis, there was this idea that we read about in a rabbinical manuscript, for those that like details, called the Paquet Avot. It's like the rabbi's greatest hits or something like that. They, they talk about building a fence around Torah, around the law. What do you do to not do the thing you're really trying not to do? Let me say that again. What do you do to not do the thing you're really trying to do? They said literally you, you build a fence just like you would build a fence to protect your property um, around the house, around the area marked off as yours. The, the, the rabbis thought about adding things to Torah that would stop you getting to the thing you were really trying not to do. What keeps the bat, which resembles murder in this case, out of reach? What stops you picking it up? What stops you grabbing it? What stops you doing that horrific thing? Well, you need something that's gonna stop you being able to reach it. And, and so they said, well, well, don't be angry, and then you won't reach for it. Don't be angry, and it stays out of reach. It's over there, you can't, you can't get there. So they would build these extra things, these fences, as they were called around Torah, to stop you picking up the bat. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he building an extra fence? I found these pictures of how the fences around the White House have changed over the years. They went from just this fence that might as well not be there. You could literally just, just jump over it to, to, to something a bit bigger and a bit higher all the way through to like now. You can't even see the thing. Might as well not be there. It's just, just disappearing. It says something maybe about our culture, but also shows like how we go to extra miles to protect what we have. The, the, the early rabbis said they would build a fence around Torah. And by not being angry, you would never pick up the weapon. If that's all Jesus is doing, then I would suggest it's not particularly original. It's not particularly different. But I would suggest that's not, that, that not all he's doing. It's part of it, but it's not all he's doing. 
As he pushes into the area of anger, he doesn't just say it for the sake of don't murder. It's not a device just to stop us picking up the bat. He's not saying anger would be fine if you could only restrain yourself. He's going to suggest, I would suggest, that anger creates a deep-rooted imbalance in us and in this world around us. The writer Clarence Darrow, the lawyer Clarence Darrow, said this, all men have an emotion to kill. When they strongly dislike someone, they involuntarily wish he was dead. I have never killed anyone, but I have read some obituary notices with great satisfaction. (laughs) There's this warped nature to all of us somewhere, and Jesus starts to point that out. You have heard it said long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. There's lots of writings on, well, what's so bad about these words, trying to get to the details, and, and there's a couple of ideas in play. One is that, they suggest that the person is, is morally inept or morally at fault. But in actual fact, in all the reading that I did this week, the best conclusion I could come to was this. There's nothing special about these words. The words are not the point. In actual fact, to a first century Jewish person, if they were to read this or hear Jesus teaching, and it would arrive at a point where he says something like, if any of you says raka to someone, they might end up in front of the courts or the Sanhedrin, they would probably laugh. It's probably that insignificant. It's certainly not anything to get into a duel or a fight over. It would be like today, if in this world, you were to find out that I called you a cotton-headed ninny muggins or something like that, and I got grabbed and taken off to court to stand trial for something. It's, It's a fairly insignificant thing. So imagine their surprise when in the next sentence Jesus says, and anyone who says to someone you fool is in danger of the fire of hell. And now we don't have time today to unpack exactly what that means, that sense of punishment, but I would suggest it's not supposed to send us into this sort of contemplation as to what's different about these two words. No, no, it's all jumbled up together to show that any of this could represent something deeply broken in us as human beings. Somewhere, Jesus says, the words that we use towards people can be reflective of something deeply internal to us. If all we focus on is the words, well, then we've gone back to the original problem. We're going back to thinking that it's only if you kill someone that there's a problem. But Jesus' point all along has been, no, no, there's there's something deeper than that, something deeper that I want to address than just did the person die or not. Somewhere Jesus is doing something, he's unpacking something that he wants us to get hold of. It's not simply not to say specific words. The writer, commentator extraordinaire on Matthew, if you want a commentary on the book of Matthew, R.T. France's commentary is is just absolutely the best I've come across, Just, just pure brilliance. He says this, the deliberate paradox of Jesus' pronouncement is that ordinary insults may betray an attitude of contempt which God takes extremely seriously. Somewhere there's a tie-in to this type of anger that we sketched out. This type of anger that might not explode, 
But this type of anger that is an ever-swelling presence is a state of bitterness and opposition to another. There's a tie in between that and this idea of contempt. Now, contempt requires some unpacking here because there's a whole bunch of writing on this idea recently that I think is brilliant for us. And I want to start with a confession. Uh, Because when I moved to America, I was very excited. There was lots that I always already loved about this country. I loved Saturday afternoon college football. I loved just the wide openness, the mountains, all these different things. But there were a few things I was concerned about. The the May class is contempt. I, I may have said to people that in moving to America, I was giving up good beer, good bread, good cheese, and good chocolate. And to be fair, at the time, these were my experiences of those things. This was my experience of beer. This was my experience of bread. (laughs) This was my experience of cheese. And this was my experience of chocolate. Now, if you love some of those things, that's great. I love some bad stuff from my past as well. It's (laughs) sentimentality. There's nothing wrong with it. But no one would list these amongst the greatest of lists for each of the different things we're talking about. They probably don't make it. So, so I came with, with, with that attitude that I could term as contempt. Contempt is to see somebody or something as lower than you. It is to make yourself higher above them, to put them lower. It's more than that, as we'll see, but in this case, it was simply that I was slightly smug about my wonderful experiences of these four things growing up, and then, of course, I got here and received correction from people just like you. I got to experience the beauty of craft breweries, which are just everywhere here. I got to experience the sourdough culture. I couldn't afford sourdough, but now my wife makes wonderful sourdough, and so we get to experience sourdough. I got to experience deep fried cheese curds in Wisconsin. I got to experience handmade crafted chocolate and got to recognize that my snobbishness was maybe a little out of line and that I didn't need to carry that kind of contempt. Now contempt in that environment, of course, is just actually just fairly good fun. It doesn't actually matter. But in human beings, it's hugely destructive. I would suggest this, Jesus teaching is centered on the idea that what we say about a person or to a person is potentially indicative of how we value that person. And that's the problem with the words. It's not the words at all. It's that the words say of the person, you are less than I am, and I am more than you are. And of course this is the story with you, because you are perhaps to the ultimate extent you are not really a person. You're not really human. You're not an image bearer. What I see in you is flawed and warped. I would suggest this, that contempt dehumanizes the other person. We see contempt beautifully represented in literature. In (coughs) King Lear, we read this, you are not worth the dust which the rude wind blows in your face. Man, Shakespeare can bring the insults. He he knows his work. But you might see it in all these sorts of phrases that you may have said or had said to you. How are you only just learning dot, dot, dot? I learned that by the time I was six. If I had a real partner, then dot, dot, dot. 
Well, it must be nice to be at work all day. Well, it must be nice to be at home all day. It's always the same story with you. It'll just be like all the other times you've tried, dot, dot, dot. Why did I ever think that you could change? Contempt is in all sorts of phrases just like that. Contempt is in the rolling of the eyes. Contempt is in the sneer. Contempt is in the way of seeing another person as less than you. The writer John Gottman has written extensively on the idea of contempt. And he says this, that contempt is sulfuric acid for love. It destroys everything it comes in contact with. Contempt starts as a defensive thing. It starts as this protective measure. It starts somewhere like the feeling of being the last soldier alive on a hill. What do you have to do to convince yourself that you need to shoot down everybody that comes towards you? You have to convince yourself that they're less than human, that they need to die. It's a protective measure and contempt, I would suggest, starts there. But at its ultimate, contempt becomes an offensive weapon, one of attack. We see contempt as more than just as individuals. It is in individuals beautifully expressed in this Taylor Swift lyric. She's having a bit of a moment since she started dating Travis Kelsey, so I thought I'd throw her in there for just a second. I'm really gonna miss you picking fights and me falling for it, screaming that I'm right, and you would hide away and find your peace of mind with some indie record that's much cooler than mine. It reflects the two sides of contempt, the one who is hurt, the one who is roused up to a fight and then is not allowed to address the issue. It expresses the the victim and the person who's doing the contempt work. The, The poet Langston Hughes said this, I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let's take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. Contempt is this thing that gets in amongst the fruit of life and starts to eat it from the inside out, starts to play this destructive part in relationships. And ultimately, contempt becomes not an accidental thing or a protective measure it becomes a vicious attacking weapon that dehumanizes the other so that you can say what you wanted to say, so you can do the thing that you wanted to do. Contempt becomes the thing that says, well, I only had an affair because you dot, dot, dot. Contempt becomes the thing that allows you to strike a blow, whether verbal or physical. Contempt is the thing that ultimately says that the other is not an image bearer, that they don't add up. And then because of what it allows us to do or you to do, well then contempt not only dehumanizes them, it dehumanizes you too. You might even say broadly contempt dehumanizes us all. As Jesus wrestles with anger, He wrestles with the deep brokenness within us that might lead us to say things to people that we would never think to say previously. It might lead us to do things to people that we would never have thought of doing previously. All because when you dehumanize someone, you get to do what you want. No wonder scripture has so much to say on anger in different places and in the New Testament particularly requires 
it gets cut off. In Ephesians chapter four, we read this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In Colossians chapter three, verse eight, it says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. There's this requirement that it should be cut off. Jesus takes murder. This broad thing that everybody knows is wrong and brings it down to the level of anger. This heart emotion that turns person against person, nation against nation, spouse against spouse, friend against friend, brother against sister. He takes this thing that warps us, that, 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 de that dehumanizes the other and dehumanizes us too. My suspicion is that you probably see this somewhere in your own life maybe. You see it in national conflicts, maybe. This nation did this, so we did this. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And everybody has a story to tell that enables them to do what they feel like they need to do. It reflects on the ease with which we are broken and warped as human beings. And so it leaves us with this question as we wrestle this within our own hearts, as we wrestle with this in our experience of marriage, of friendship, of all sorts of things. What should we do? What, what should we do? And Jesus, somewhat uncomfortably, doesn't always give us complete practical advice. What advice he does give us is this. Heal it quickly. Fix it quickly. Don't let it take root. Don't let it fester. Don't let it shape you as a human being. Don't let it lead you to that point where it's no longer defensive, but now it's a vicious assault on another person's humanity. In the next verses, he says, in Matthew chapter 5, 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and offer your gift. This passage is brilliant, uh, just because of some of the humor in play, because Jesus does this all the time. Uh, a quick question, how many altars were there in Judaism in the first century? Anyone have an answer to that? It's not a trick question. Anyone? I guess I saw some ones at the back, right? There was one. And where was it? It was in Jerusalem. Where is Jesus speaking right now? He's speaking to a bunch of people in Galilee, up north, about five days walk from Jerusalem. So Jesus says to a bunch of people, if you've traveled five days to do a religious duty, and in that moment remember that there's this conflict, that there's this thing, and, and the language there is simply this thing between you, this something, something, uh, then, then quickly get back on your camel or whatever thing, or walk if you walked, and just, just with all haste and speed, just return back to Galilee, fix it, and then return back to Jerusalem, and do what you were gonna do, and then go back home to Galilee again. Jesus asked them to take 10 days and huge expense to go through this process. When you travel, I suspect like me, you probably have this list of things that you might forget, things that you want to like, make sure you remember for your trip. And somewhere there's this algorithm that works in your brain, it's probably not written down, that says this is how far away I have to be to go back and get that thing. 
And, and as the list like gets up in importance, the, the amount of time you're willing to go back in the other direction to get it, like that, that goes up as well. So if it's a passport and you're going to the airport, it doesn't matter how far you got on the journey. You probably didn't get very far because they turned you away at the airport and said go back home. And there's no other solution. You're going back home. There's other things that you're kind of like, ah, oh, we can do without that. That'll be fine. We'll just we'll figure out a way to make it work. When I used to run mission trips for people, I said, if you can get to the airport with your passport, everything else is negotiable. Like we can deal with everything else, but those two things, we need you and we need your passport at the airport together. There's this algorithm that's somewhere like value of the thing over the time it takes versus the distance equals, do I go back or not? Somewhere it's there. Jesus says there's nothing too small in terms of a relational struggle, a relational conflict to go back for, which is hard to hear for me who's so willing to let things fester under the surface, to let the thing go unsaid. And now I do I think Jesus wants to turn us all into people that are constantly worried about how people perceive us and how people think about us and are constantly saying, is there something between us? Is there something between us? No, no, it's not that at all. But he does simply say, if you know there's a thing, if you're aware of it, if you remember, oh yeah, we still haven't dealt with that, then, then go. Go fix that thing. Leave your gift, your goat, your pigeons, whatever you were giving this time, in front of the altar. Go back and be reconciled to them and then come back and offer your gift. Jesus treats this healing of relationships as the central element of life, the must have. And to emphasize what he said, he, uh, he unpacks it with a second parable, which we'll just go through really quickly. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Never talks too much about who's to blame, who's the ultimate person at fault. Doesn't seem too interested in that conversation at all. Only it seems interested in the relationship. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And that's a bit of a mystery to us, that phrase back in lots of periods of antiquity, there was a thing called debtor's prison. It wasn't that you'd done, committed a crime, it was that you owed money. And so somewhat counterintuitively, I've never figured out this system, this is what they would do. They would say to you, oh, we're gonna put you in prison until you've paid back the debt, which massively hindered your ability to pay back the debt. It was like, don't work, uh, and then when we've paid back, you've paid back the debt, we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. Or a family member could come pay, or, or something like that. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus envisions a metaphor in which we might find ourselves prisoners to the conflict within our relationships. We might find ourselves prisoners to the contempt and the dehumanizing of another and what it does to us as well. So one more time, like Jesus, help us. What should we do? Yes, fix it. But how do I, how do I get rid of that brokenness within me? That, 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 that kind of anger, bitterness within me. I asked some people within the church to give me a sentence on, on how you would say you feel anger. And there are all sorts of different answers, everything from growlies within inside me to the sense of the lack uh, of control, this deep ongoing frustration and an infuriation that I couldn't 
fix the situation. Jesus tells us to, to fix it quickly, but, but what do we do? And there he doesn't give us anything more right now. But I have some suggestions. The first one is this, is to consciously choose to be human in a dehumanized world. To recognize that you have emotions, that it's okay to feel them. That it's okay to feel those moments that Jesus first unpacks of, of, of being angry, of feeling that storm rising up within you. Jesus seems most interested in what you do with it afterwards rather than how you express it in that instance. The second one is this, make every effort to rehumanize the other. At my worst, what I do is I take people and I read every single one of their motives and I assume I know a whole bunch of stuff that I don't really know and I make them less than me and I make myself more than I am. Forget all of the ways that I'm flawed, the way, all, all the ways that I'm broken. I turn them into the villain. I dehumanize them. And then the third really simple bit of advice is this. Address your anger. Now that, that seems too reductionist, and it is importantly so, or intentionally so. What I don't mean is address your anger. What I mean is this. Don't just address your anger. Address the thing beneath your anger. For the most part, anger isn't a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. There's something else underneath it. Sometimes it's sadness, grief. Oftentimes it's fear. But it might be characterized as a whole bunch of things. I even found this beautiful iceberg metaphor that, you know, icebergs, remember, 90% under the surface. There's angry, yes, but there's all sorts of things, embarrassed, tricked, overwhelmed, distrustful, attacked, rejected, guilty, exhausted, unsure, disappointed, offended, uncomfortable, worried, hurt, regretful, insecure, disrespected. There's trauma, there's grumpies, there's trapped, there's shame. All of these different emotions that live under the surface, that bring out that sense of anger, that create that culture of dehumanizing the other, that create that culture of contempt. And as you wrestle with that, there's this question that I've asked myself repeatedly over the last six months, and it's been life-changing for me when I remember to ask it. It's this, this, in this moment of tension, in this moment where I'm tempted to feel all the things I've mentioned today, I ask myself this, what untransformed part of me is this moment revealing? What untransformed part of me is this moment revealing? I have this moment of recognition that somewhere there's a story, somewhere there's a feeling, a primary emotion, somewhere there's a something and I feel in those moments it rising to the surface. I feel it like becoming the thing. And I get to reflect with this beautiful Jesus who constantly leads us down journeys of transformation. I get to reflect on him what exactly that is. And I get to see him transforming. Because none of this is calling you to play a part. It's Jesus' constant good invitation towards a transformed heart. Jesus beautifully says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, 
I will give you rest. Come to me, all of you who find yourself in the far country. I have a welcome home. Come for me. Come to me, all of you who are broken. All of you who are thirsty. All of you have nothing left to give. All of you who find yourself beaten up by this world. All of you who find yourself living contemptuously towards others and the target of contempt. All of you who have dehumanized others and all of you who feel dehumanized. He says, come to me. Come to me who transforms and renews all things. And that's the invitation. Aaron's going to sing a song over us reflects on our need for transformed hearts and I'm just going to ask the prayer team that that pray regularly to just come and dot themselves around different parts of the room and you may be in a few different groups and this is something that I regularly need prayer for I'll probably go and ask someone to pray for me to be honest Uh, so don't ask me to pray for you until someone's praying for me but you might say this yeah I'm starting to see anger as something more than just a rage there's this bitterness this root it's there and it's gnawing. It's like if, I, if you cut me open, you'd find it's the worm that's just stirring at me. It's eating. And you may want someone to just come alongside you and pray with you. You might say, I have felt that contempt from another. I have felt dehumanized time and time again. And you might want someone just to pray with you. You might say, I long for transformation. I don't know where it's coming from because I have nothing to bring. And you might like someone to pray with you. You might say, I find myself again in a far country I didn't expect to be in. You might want someone to pray with you. In all sorts of places, you might just say, this has become a thing. And before I go and say something to someone, before I come and ask forgiveness or offer forgiveness, I actually would just love someone to pray with me this beautiful Jesus time and time again comes alongside his children and says let me bring transformation let me lead to pathways of forgiveness let me restore all things Uh, Jesus as we begin to sing and pray would you speak to hearts would you dart in on us would it be like right now as though you're walking these aisles and these rows of chairs and maybe just touching hands on shoulders lifting heads offering the promise of restoration and hope of a new story would you speak to us words that remind us we're going to be okay would you give us courage to make hard decisions and choices but would you most of all remind us that we're loved amen would you stand friends And as Aaron sings, if you'd like to receive prayer, there's people around. They'd love to pray for you. And we'd love to see that happen. And we'd love to hear the stories of transformation that come with that. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.